With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. You're listening to the Red Sea Podcast. Back to full. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Part of the Over the Monster Network. Swing and a high deep drive in the right field. That one's stalled to the right. Hunter on the move. Racing back. It's over his head. It's gone. It's into the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. Presented by SB Nation. It hasn't happened at Fenway Park for 95 years. The Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. Here comes a 1-2 pitch. And featuring Keaton DeRocher. High deep He crushed it! It's a grand slam! Wow! I'm telling you, time to party! Got it! 300 strikeouts in 2017 for Chris Sale. An absolute strikeout machine. 13 tonight against the Baltimore Orioles. They're all loaded. High fly ball, deep in the left center field. Get out. Way back it carries. And that ball is gone! The Red Sox walk it off in style. That's how it's done. The X-Man strikes. Fly ball to deep left center field. Devers has hit it out. The rookie takes Jeff in the other way to tie the game. Welcome back to the Over the Monster podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I am joined by Keaton DeRocher of Over the Monster and the Dynasty Guru. Keaton, you made your debut piece on Over the Monster this week. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Feels great. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, in addition to um, you know Keaton making his debut on the site this week, we also had another new writer, Shelley Verstrait, 
Um, and we're, we've got some podcast announcements that are going to be coming to you very soon. So stay tuned. The Over the Monster podcast family is expanding, um, which is very exciting for all of you. You don't have to do anything else. You just need to stay subscribed to the Over the Monster podcast. And all of the new podcasts that we're going to come out with are going to show up on the same feed. So if you like good content, and clearly you do if you're listening to this, we're going to have more coming, and uh, we'll announce further details as soon as things are finalized. But get excited, people. All right. Um, since we last spoke on the 1st of March, uh, a lot has happened. Um, Chris Sale is the big news. So um, Chris Sale went out and threw to some live batters. Uh, he threw either 15 or 18 pitches. I can't remember how many. Um I think it was 15, to live batters. Um, he was facing Akami and then one other guy whose name is escaping me right now. I think it was Jansen Witte, actually. Um, and he said he felt fine. He's been wearing that sleeve on his, his elbow that measures the torque and everything. But a few days after throwing that side session, uh, or that live batter session, I should say, um, he reported some pain and went and had an MRI on the troubled elbow, the one that he got PRP in. Um, this past off season, I guess, for him. I mean, he got it in August, but, um, you know, he's been resting it. And then he got three opinions on it, two of which came from James Andrews and Neil Atrache, who are basically the two best elbow doctors in the entire country. And both of them... Elitrash. Elitrash, that's it. Thank you, Keaton. (laughs) I can always count on you for pronunciation. Um, And then... Both of those gentlemen recommended uh, rest for what they were calling a flexor strain. Um, Keaton, this does not seem like something good, um, <laughs> to say the least. This no. seems like we are on a ticking time bomb here and that Tommy John is probably going to happen. Yeah, I mean, he had he was shut down at the end of last year and had all off-season to recover and rest from the PRP, and then threw 15 pitches of BP, and it flared up. That's not great. That's not a great sign at all. It didn't take much for that to happen at all. So that's really troubling. And I think um, I understand uh, the Red Sox getting um, pretty much like every doctor – opinion on this because um, I think it was uh, High and Bloom that said they they just wanted to get it right, which is why they were asking everybody, um, especially with the investment that they made in him. I get it. Uh, but at the same time, I would have rather had them just do it. And even when his elbow flared up at the end of last year, um, I mean, it's obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, uh, and It's pretty easy to say it now. But if there was even a chance that he may have needed surgery uh, and they were just playing the odds that he wouldn't, we're now about six months out from when it first happened, and we'd be halfway through his recovery. Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult to to look at that and say that's what he should have done because obviously yeah. a guy like Sale wants to bank on his own body. If anybody tells him there's a way to avoid surgery, like I don't blame him. I've had a bunch of surgeries. I haven't had TJ, obviously, um, but I've had you know a bunch of surgeries, and you know surgery sucks. Um, no one wants to to get it if they don't have to. Um, and 
you know, you can't blame the guy for making these choices about his body because it does work for some people. It worked for Tanaka. Uh, that guy still hasn't gotten it, and he's still pitching effectively a lot of the time. So um, I agree. I mean, looking back, um, you wish that he just got it. Um, but now, I mean, it seems like it, it definitely is the time. And I don't know who makes this call now. I, I guess it's some combination of the Red Sox and Chris Sale. Um, but the longer that this waits, the more that this is going to bleed into next year. And next year is a season where, you know, with the, the payroll being reset and with the Red Sox presumably spending money again, um, that they would want to have a healthy Chris Sale available to them. So it almost seems like, if it's going to happen, the Red Sox ought to explain to Chris Sale that they would like it to happen really soon um, and not have this thing drag out. Because I can't imagine that the Red Sox are looking at this team right now and being like, yeah, we're a lock for anything at this point. And especially if Chris Sale is gone for any meaningful amount of time, um, the chances of the Red Sox doing anything this year other than finishing in maybe third place is not great. In their division. Yeah, I think that's best-case scenario now. Um, well, I thought that was best-case scenario before. Um, and I even thought that if things didn't really go well, then they'd even finish behind Toronto. Uh, and if they're not going to have Chris Sale for the season, um, which we won't know for another couple of weeks, then I, that feels even more like a lock to me that Toronto will be able to pass him. But I think... Um, the decision on how to, well, I mean, I guess the decision to not get surgery will always be there. But Chris Sale did say when he was speaking that they'll know a lot more in two weeks. So it seems like they're basically shutting him down for two weeks and then he'll start ramping up again. Um, and if it flares up again after that two-week rest, then I assume then they're just going to recommend to get it. Uh, I can't imagine them just continuing just to have him shut down at rest um, if there are, you know, are slim hopes that it will end up correcting itself when they basically have just done that twice now when we get to that point. So I, it just – all signs just kind of seem like it's pointing to it is going to happen. Yeah, I agree. Um, and <clears throat> looking – you know, let's just assume here for a second. Let's do a thought exercise because it's the most likely scenario that it does happen, right? We both agree on that. I think so. Um, so then I think it becomes more and more likely that the Red Sox are using this as a bridge here, which means that they're going to full-on being exploring possibilities in the trade market and things that we were looking at um, in the event that they – you know, got to the date deadline and weren't doing very well. Things like J.D. Martinez being shopped, um, Jackie Bradley Jr., um, you know, Mitch Moreland if anybody wants him, and then a lot of the pitchers in their rotation, any of the starters, um, you know, potentially even a guy like Erod if they don't feel like they can make traction on a contract there. Um, Martin Perez, Nathan Eovaldi, the back-end bullpen arms we were talking about. I mean, all that stuff is on the table from basically day one, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the reevaluation period for sale is like right before opening day. So it'll basically be like 
day one or within like the first week or two of the season, then they'll have their essentially their direction. But I yeah. I would be for it. Um, I mean, I already feel like they are using this as a bridge year, even though they keep telling us they're not. Um, but I kind of expect JBJ to be traded. Um, we got, I think on the last pod we talked about this, right? Because we had... Yeah, we talked about like, it at the end uh, of the pod, how, you know, if they got to the deadline and they were like, you know, not in contention for the wild card spot, forget about the division. We already thought that was out of the window, but, you know, what? who would they try and move and who would fetch a lot of value? That's what we kind of hit on last week. Yeah, so, I mean, you hit on JBJ and J.D. Martinez. Because uh, I think if the Red Sox struggle, there's no way he's opting in. I, think, I, I definitely think he'll be out. Um, and then we also talked about Barnes and Workman in the bullpen as options for them to trade as well. They have a lot of assets that contending teams at the deadline would be really interested in, um, which is maybe not at the moment because teams may be hesitant depending on where they think they're going to land in the realm of competition. But I think that's the most likely scenario. Um, I felt like that was the most likely scenario just because I was more down on this season than you were. Uh, but then just with this Chris Sale news, it just seems like more of a formality at this point for me that they'll be sellers and um, and this is just a bridge. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think that's definitely the direction that it's taking. But I, I don't want people to get too down on this because there's a couple ways of looking at this that I think are kind of positive. So the way that I had been looking at the Red Sox was obviously taking an optimistic view of post Mookie Betts life. It was, Hey, they get to reset. They get to spend money in the future. That's good. Um, the other thing that I thought was good was that if everything broke correctly, if you got a healthy Chris sale, if Erod did what he was supposed to do, if Eovaldi came back healthy, like all these things, if they all went well, there was still enough talent for this team to make a wild card. But now that Chris sales, not looking healthy and there's a lot of other question marks on this team, um, you you get to the point where you're you're strictly thinking about the future, and it's conceivable to me that this team could make it to the trade deadline this year and have JD Martinez, the most attractive bat on the market in the trade market, which is an awesome thing to have. You could also have Jackie Bradley Jr., the best defensive outfielder available on the trade market. You could also have Erod if they decide to trade him, who could be the best starter on the trade market. Depending on how Eovaldi or Perez pitch, I mean, those guys could definitely be important. And Brandon Workman, we both think is an excellent closer and has been and showed it last year. I mean, he could be the best reliever available at the, the deadline as well. And if they decide to shop Matt Barnes, he could be the second best reliever at the deadline. So... Um, they could be loaded for making some pretty huge splashes that would be much-needed additions to this team, both in controllable major league talent and in restocking a farm system that definitely still needs to be restocked. Yeah. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head there. I agree with all that. Um, and, you know, we still get to watch these guys too. So, I mean, I'm still excited about baseball obviously and yeah there's a lot of uh, interesting things and I'm going to jump to a couple of them right now just because we um, are already talking about these guys but um, right now today uh, as we record this on a Sunday Martin Perez just pitched uh, in a game and he threw four innings uh, allowed four hits struck out seven and only walked one the cutter that he has been talking about 
uh, looked great today. And Martin Perez looks like a real addition to this team. Yeah, this was a big surprise because when they made the addition, I was very much under the moon about it. And <laughs> and I know that um, you had outlined when they first made it that he was working on another pitch. But it just it seemed um, – just looking at his previous numbers, I just wasn't sure if it was going to help because his, his previous the numbers that he's put up over the past couple of years have been pretty bad, uh, last year in particular. So I just didn't know if a new pitch was really going to make that big of a difference, but it actually kind of seems like it is. Um, he's kind of been able to spread out his arsenal a lot more, and it's a very, very effective pitch for someone who's just basically picking it up. Um, it doesn't seem like he really needed a lot of work to figure it out. Um and I'm actually very pleasantly surprised. I know it's spring training, and it's hard to really buy in to um, spring training results, but I think we would be more concerned if a guy like Perez was struggling in spring training when we expected him to you know, be a part of this rotation. We would hope that he wouldn't you know, go out there and get like lit up here and there, um, which I think actually in his last one he – the line looked bad, but he didn't get through an inning. But he only allowed one earned run uh, to the Yankees, even though uh, he was charged with six. But uh, it's a couple brutal errors that kind of messed that up. But he bounced back really nicely today. and looks a lot more solid than I had expected. So I'm hoping that he can keep this going once uh, we turn the page to the regular season. Because if he can actually like lock down um, and be a reliable um, I mean, I guess he's the third option right now, but like a reliable fourth, fifth guy, uh, that actually makes a huge difference for this rotation. Yeah, absolutely. It would make an, a massive difference, and that's a chip too. I mean, that's another chip that you can trade and flip to a contender uh, who would have a lot of value because I can't see that they're probably planning on having him be a core piece of their future. It's not like – you know, he's signed to a super long deal or anything like that. So um, especially him being cheap might be attractive to a lot of teams. I'm going to scream it again, but Nathan Eovaldi, man, the, the line for the spring is up to eight innings pitched, only four hits allowed, one walk, and 12 freaking strikeouts. This guy is absolutely pitching out of his dome this spring. I am really unable to not react to this in an irrational way. I mean, he's winning yeah. the side. Right, <laughs> basically, <laughs> I I am just as pleasantly surprised. Well, maybe not pleasantly surprised, but I mean, this is kind of what we hoped we were going to get from him when um, he was signed to that whatever seventy million dollar deal or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is what we were hoping we were going to get out of him last year. Obviously, it didn't go that well. Uh, a lot of injuries um, was really kind of a bummer year. But I think, I mean, if he comes back and posts, like, I don't know, SP2 level stuff here, I mean, I think a lot of people are going to start looking at this contract a lot differently. And I, I'm just as excited as you, and I'm kind of, like, buying every share of Evaldi that I can get here in my fantasy leagues because I think he's, he's due for the year that we hoped we were going to get from him. Um, I guess... Uh, history will tell us to temper our expectations because it, uh, his track record of getting through an entire season and being productive is not great. No. But it's it's just hard not to see what he's doing in spring training and not be excited about it. 
Yeah, the tools for Eovaldi have always been there, and it seems like it took him a long time to figure out exactly what pitches he should be throwing. And then he was wearing one of those sleeves, too, when he was rehabbing, uh, and he had figured out that uh, his curveball was actually the pitch that puts the most stress on his elbow, uh, not his cutter or his fastball, which are both excellent pitches for him. So I think he's subtly figuring out ways to – uh, limit the stress on his body as well, and we all know that he's one of the strongest dudes in baseball. Um, so the tools have always been there. It just seems like he's somebody who could be a good candidate to be a late bloomer and someone who could live up to his contract um, if he puts all those tools together. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, I think you're right to be a little bit cautious, um, but let's overreact. We need some good news, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even if this ends up being a bridge year and they're not contending, there's plenty of individual performances that I'll be really excited to watch. I mean, every time they're – like every Evaldi start, I'm going to be pretty locked in. Erod, be pretty locked in. Every Devers at bat, Bogart's at bat. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of stuff to be excited about about this team, whether they're competing or not. And they'll be fun to watch. Maybe the results may not be exactly what we're looking for, but they'll be entertaining games. Totally agree. We should also talk about the back end of this bullpen. So we had made our roster projections last time, and um, I think there's a little bit more clarity now that camp has been going on a little bit longer. Um, None of these guys that we have been discussing have been um, cut or – off the team yet, so everybody's still in play. But Ryan Brazier is the first guy I want to mention. He threw another clean inning today. Uh, has five innings of two, 2.25 ERA baseball this spring. Uh, he sure looks like he's back. Yeah, I would agree with that. And that's a good sign because the, I think this bullpen is going to need it. And both of us did have him on our rosters. Um, the other two guys I wanted to mention uh, are two guys that you had one of them on your roster and I had one of them on, on my roster um, when we did our projections. But um, your guy was Colton Brewer. Um, so far, Colton Brewer has been really good this spring. Uh, he's thrown five and two-thirds innings pitch to a 3.18 ERA, struck out six, only walked two guys. Opponents are batting 167 off of him. Uh, Colton Brewer does definitely look pretty solid right now, and I think is a good candidate for one of those spots. Yeah, I would like to see him get it. I uh, mentioned on the podcast last time that Brewer was named specifically by Cora as someone he was keeping an eye on through the offseason. And keeping track of his offseason program and working um, or following his progress, working on his pitches and things like that. So he was expecting a lot from Brewer uh, and taking a jump forward this year, um, and so that was why I had him pegged as one of the relievers because I was just kind of, um, if he was already targeted as someone to keep an eye on, then um, I think it made sense to kind of put him on the roster. And uh, there's enough guys at the back end that, I mean, I think you and I had four different guys filling out the last two spots, and a lot of them were just kind of interchangeable. But I think Brewer um, – it's been pretty solid. He's kind of showing that he, he is maybe ready to take that step forward in the bullpen and be more than just kind of a uh, just a mop up, get a couple innings guy, uh, and yeah. maybe used in um, kind of leading up to the high leverage innings. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, he's a guy that scared the crap out of me every time he pitched. So I hope, hopefully, uh, he's figured out a way to get rid of that feeling. Um, the, the last guy I want to talk about here, um, that was on our list. We want to talk about two more guys, but, um, Austin Bryce, uh, the guy who came over from, uh, I want to say it was Miami in a trade, uh, five and two thirds innings pitched, 10 strikeouts, just one walk, two hits allowed and no earned runs. I think Bryce has locked up a spot the way that he's pitched. I'd be surprised if he didn't make it. Yeah, I think I would too. Uh, I think um, the what you laid out on the last podcast, kind of I started to maybe change my tune on him because I had Osich instead of Bryce, and it was basically just because um, I didn't really have any argument more so for Osich other than I just thought Bloom might keep the guy that he acquired kind of deal. Um, and so mm-hmm. I went with Osich. Uh, but I think – uh, and maybe Osich is still very much in the running for one of those backhand spots, but I'm actually a little bit more intrigued with Bryce, and I think you're you're onto something there. Yeah, Osich is definitely still in the game. Uh, I agree, and both of these guys were actually acquired by Bloom, Bryce, and, and Osich. But Osich has six strikeouts to four walks this spring. He has limited damage. His ERA is under two and four and two thirds. Um, but he's looked a little bit more hittable, a little bit less sharp than Bryce has looked. And I think he's looked a little bit less sharp than all those other guys we mentioned, Colton Brewer included. Um, so that, that kind of makes me a little unsure, uh, about, about him as a candidate, but I think that he's still a possibility at this point. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, some that I want to mention not being a possibility. Uh, Tanner Houck was absolutely lit up. It doesn't seem like he is going to be in the running for a fifth spot or for a bullpen spot right now. Um, Tanner Houck's velocity was also down, so that's something to monitor there. Um, Chris Mazza has been really bad. He got lit up again today. Um, and then Hall. Hall has also not been good, uh, and he was – dinged up for a couple runs today as well. So uh, a few of those options would really surprise me if they made it. And, and Hauk can't because he was actually one of the guys that was uh, designated today. It was Some cuts were made. So uh, I'll just announce those cuts right now. Jason Mastrodonato tweeted it out earlier today. Uh, Red Sox uh, send down Rodani Baldwin, Connor Wong, Jeter Downs, Josh Ockamy, RJ Alvarez, Trevor Hildenberger, Tanner Hauk, Mike Kickham. Uh, Bobby Dahlbeck, CJ Chatham, Kyle Hart, Mike Schwarner, and Phillips Valdez all get reassigned to AAA. Marcus Wilson to AA, and Yohan Ibar to high A. Um, so a lot of guys off the roster now, um, and a few of our questions answered, right? We had speculated that maybe Bobby Dahlbeck and CJ Chatham had an outside shot at a roster spot. They are not going to get one. Phillips Valdez doesn't get one. Kyle Hart and Schwarin were guys talked about for the fifth spot, as well as how can none of those guys are going to get a spot. Yeah, I think the two that were um, maybe the most surprising, maybe not. Um, Hauk, for me, was a guy that I had actually just written about in back-to-back roundtables as uh, somebody that could be used in the, um, I guess, what we expect uh, Colin McHugh's role to be. And maybe we'll, we'll talk about him in a minute. Um, I realize we just forgot to add him to the thing. Um, but someone who could be able to start, could follow the opener, could be the opener. Uh, so I thought he had outside chance at kind of being uh, like a utility reliever or a utility pitcher. But he wasn't added to the 40-man roster, so that made it maybe a slightly more difficult path because they would have had to open up a spot to add him. 
But someone who was added to the 40-man, I was surprised they're not getting a, a more of an extended look at Dahlbuck, to be honest. Um, just with the state of the roster and uh, how he could fill in in a couple different positions, uh, and he's already on the 40-man, I thought he would get more of an extended look. So I was kind of surprised that he was in this first wave. Yeah, the only thing that could possibly tell me uh, is that they're just really, really valuing every day at bats for him. Because I remember that was one thing when we talked about him making a roster spot, you kind of mentioned that to me. And you were like, would they rather have him up there sitting on the bench and playing sometimes or down in AAA getting every day at bats? And clearly, since they see him as part of the future, they're looking at reps for him as being more important than anything. Yeah, but do you think that that um – well, I feel like he probably would get the same amount of work in Major League Camp versus Minor League Camp, right? Oh, yeah, probably. So that's, yeah. that's why I was surprised they didn't continue to get more of an extended look with him in Major League Camp. Do you think that had anything to do with the Chris Sale news? Maybe them thinking about the fact that competing early on is not going to be as important? Maybe. I mean, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that factors into the decision-making at all. Yeah, so that was just the one that really kind of stood out to me. Yeah, I agree. Um, when do you expect Dahlbeck up, and do you expect him up at this year? Yeah, this year I think so. Um, I guess I wouldn't be surprised with, like, if he pushes it maybe June uh, but I think maybe after the trade deadline will be more realistic if they've fire sailed and then bringing him up to get major league at bats for the last whatever that month and a half of the season. And would you agree he's the first call if anything happens to anyone at first or third? Yeah, for sure. I don't know where else they would go. So yeah, I mean, unless they stashed a guy like Nick Longy or something like yeah. that, but I don't think they'd do that. All right, um, we didn't talk about Colin McHugh yet, and we haven't talked about the fifth rotation spot, which is one of the things that we could have talked about when we were talking about Chris Sale, but it does seem like the rotation is kind of locked in for opening day at this point. It seems like it's going to be um, Nathan Eovaldi as well as Martin Perez. Um, oh, my God, who am I blanking on right now? The third guy. Rod. Erod, oh my God. Yes, Erod, the best pitcher of the bunch. Um, I've been thinking about these fringe guys too long. Um, it seems like Weber has locked down a spot as well. Brian Johnson's pitched well enough. It seems like he's likely. But Colin McHugh had an off-season surgery. They basically, he had this weird surgery that's basically non-invasive. And what it does is it repairs tendon issues uh, in the elbow. So he had this... This uh, I can't remember what it's called. The thing is, like, uh, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna butcher it, so I'm not gonna try and say it. Um, but I did actually look it up, and I went to the website of the surgery, and even looked up pictures of what the surgery looks like, and it was very strange. But anyway, it's like non-invasive. It's apparently good, and he had that. But Colin McHugh is very talented, and he's gonna be a much better option in this rotation when he's healthy than Brian Johnson is. And if they decide to pitch him out of the bullpen, he's also super dangerous there. Um, so if they decide to go with an opener, he's awesome to follow an opener. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he was incredibly effective for the Astros. As, well, not as effective as a starter, but he had injuries that kind of led to that. But when he was in the bullpen, wildly effective. 
uh, and was mostly effective as a starter. So I think it's a great pickup because he can be used in a bunch of different ways, and the Red Sox have basically holes in every possible way that you could end up using McHugh. He could fill them. Um, my one hesitation is maybe that, or maybe this is a good thing because he's coming you know, back from injury. So he also has, uh, I believe, a flexor strain. I'm not entirely sure if he's going to be ready for opening day, but he has pitched uh, a couple times in, like, showcases and simulated games and stuff like that. <clears throat> but he could be a guy that, um, to save his innings, he's used as a starter uh, and then gets stints in the bullpen uh, and then comes back as a starter at times in the year so that they don't overload him at one particular in one particular role. That could be one way to save his arm is by basically you know, doing that uh, and having that maybe uh, like five turns through the order. He's a starter, and then the next five he's used in some sort of relief capacity. But, I mean, he could be an opener and go the, like the first two innings, or he could be the guy that follows an opener and goes for four, or he could be a starter. So I think we'll probably see him used at, at times in – all of those various roles, just given the makeup of the current rotation. But I think in whichever one he's in, he'll, he there's a real good chance he'll be effective. So I, I like this signing. This was a good signing. Yeah, I totally agree um, with everything you said. And I wholeheartedly agree that it's a good signing. And somebody who I think is useful no matter where the Red Sox are. So if – they're unexpectedly in it. He's extremely useful. If they keep him for future years when they reload and this team actually is healthy, he's useful. I mean, this is just a guy you want on your team regardless of the station of your team. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Quality ad right there. All right. So uh, let's transition here. One of the things I wanted to talk about, and I know I banned you all from talking to me about Mookie Betts, but I'm <laughs> going to talk to you about Mookie Betts um, because something big happened over this past week. So Christian Yellick, uh, who in my, my opinion is up there for the second best player in baseball. I'm not 100% sure that Mookie's better than Christian Yellick, but... They're damn good baseball players. When you talk about second best player, it's kind of like you're talking about Bellinger, you're talking about Yellick, and you're talking about Mookie. Um, Yellick would have won the MVP last year if he didn't hurt his knee at the end of the season. Um, and a lot of people even thought he should have won it over Bellinger anyhow. Um, but the dude's a stud. He just signed a nine-year, $215 million contract with the Milwaukee Brewers. And I have to say... I was a little annoyed when I looked at this deal because Yellick is awesome, Mookie's awesome, but Mookie reportedly asked the Red Sox for 420 million bucks, and I know that that's negotiating, but holy crap, man, tw- that's basically double the contract that that Christian Yellick just got. Um, Mookie is not worth double Christian Yellick, and it just makes me very frustrated about this situation. It did not make me frustrated at all. It's uh, it's not a shock to me that we saw this in different ways. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm happy for Yelich. I'm glad that he got locked up and got his money, but um, I'm still thoroughly convinced Mookie's worth like 350 to 380. So uh, the fact that the Red Sox stopped at 10 and 300, uh, and that was the last offer they made, and they didn't actually negotiate or make an attempt to sign him long term, 
I think has we don't know effect. that. Well, we do know that. That was reported, and Henry even confirmed it. The last report was <clears throat> that he offered was offered ten and three hundred after twenty eighteen. We don't know if they offered anything during that. Right. Well, they said Henry said in the last press conference that they made attempts over three off seasons to sign him, and we know three of them were the uh, I forgot how many years it was, and one hundred, eight and two hundred, and 10 and 300. And so those were in three consecutive off seasons. So he confirmed those were when they had negotiations. And then he even said before, I think the, I forget who it was that was asking the question, but the follow up question to that was, was there anything you could have done to prevent getting to this point? And his response was, yeah, we could have signed him. Well, that's what everybody was hoping for, man. So, I mean, whatever Christian Yelich's deal is, I still it had no effect on what I thought the Red Sox should have done with Mookie or maybe annoyed with how Mookie handled the situation at all. So you think Mookie is worth that much more than Christian Yelich? Yeah. Why? He's a much better defender. Yelich maybe has okay. an edge at the plate. Uh, I wouldn't think that Mookie is much far, that far behind. But I think Mookie, Mookie, <coughs> Mookie is a much better defender and much better overall player. Um, he's a year younger, which does – it's not I mean, it's not a massive difference when we're talking about a, like a 28 versus a 27-year-old, but it does make sense in terms of – when this contract is signed through their um, like prime 27 to 31 years. Uh, and then also uh, this deal includes the last two years of the deal that he signed with the Marlins. So if like the, he's getting like 12 million and like 13 million in the first two years, which are not market value for him at all, but they're part of that deal because it was the deal that he'd already signed. They basically just extended him two years before he was going to hit free agency to lock it up. So, I mean, this it would go up to like maybe 250 or slightly over 250 if he was getting the AAV of the last seven years for the first two years of the of like well under market deal. So that's something to consider too. I still think I would pay Mookie $100 million more than Yelich. I would have done that. So you'd pay Mookie three fifteen? Yeah, or I mean three fifty even. That's I mean I okay three. I don't think the rest yeah. I mean I would, I would consider Mookie at three fifty, but you have to you have to admit that four twenty is insane. Yeah, and we did. I did admit that to you on several yeah. podcasts. You keep getting hung up on that. <sighs> I I mean it's just such a crazy figure to me. And when I look at these two players, I totally agree with you that Mookie's the better defender. But at the same time, like. He's less than a year older than than Mookie. Christian Yelich is. I'm not gonna even pretend that he's even close to the outfielder that that Mookie is. But he's a better bat in every single way. And if, even if we look at like advanced metrics like exit velocity, hard hit. I mean, he has faster sprint speed. His x slugging, x batting average, x woba, everything is stronger with Christian Yelich. He is a superior hitter at the plate. And the thing that's going to go first, that always goes first with elite players, is their defense. It's just what happens. Like, defenders don't stay Ken Griffey Jr. level defender through their 30s. That just doesn't happen unless you're Adrian Beltre. Um, so I think that when you're looking at these guys over the next 10 years of their contracts, I'd rather bank on the guy with a really strong bat than the guy who's got a great bat in elite defense. I mean, I, I could easily see Christian Yelich outproducing Mookie Betts over the next 10 years. Perhaps, but I also think the ballpark actually would, plays heavily into it. <clears throat> because 
Uh, Yelich's batting profile, I mean, he, up until last year, just did not hit the ball into the air at all. Um, his uh, launch angle um, when he made his debut was literally zero. Uh, and then in 2016, it was two yeah. and a half. And the next two years, it was under five. Last year was the first time that he actually had a uh, league average uh, launch angle. And he hit almost 40 home runs. And even with a launch angle of 4.7, um, last year he almost hit 40 homers. Or well, I guess he did hit 40 homers last year. But 2018 almost hit 40 with basically not hitting the ball in the air. And I think a lot of that has to do with the ballpark because he did his power didn't unlock until he went to Milwaukee, which is one of the more hitter-friendly parks there. So I think that is still something to consider. Um, do you expect him to continue to hit the ball uh, basically with the same kind of quality of contact that he did last year because that was the first year that he had really done that. I think so. I think Yellick is a good enough hitter um, that he can maintain those gains. I do think it is a little bit weird that that was the first year that he had that launch angle um, over, you know, over double digits. I mean, he yeah. was so low for so long. But, I mean, he was able to have success like that for so long. I think he was kind of reticent to change because he was able to make all-star teams because everything that he hits is a laser yeah. beam, right? Like his hard hit and his, his exit velo and his ability to barrel up anything um, has kind of covered that up. So he was fine taking 30-plus doubles because he had he's had 30-plus doubles every single year of his career except for the year he debuted, which he didn't have a full season, and for last year where he hit 29. So basically he's traded doubles and triples for home runs, which I, I think is the trend that we want to see. And now he's done it two years in a row with 36 and 44. So I agree with you that the ballpark plays a lot into it, but also he's such a smart hitter that I feel like he would adapt to whatever ballpark he was playing in. And we have to also understand that before he got to Milwaukee, he was playing in Miami pre-them yeah. moving the fences in. So that's a pretty tough place for a guy in his early 20s who's not considered a power hitter. To that was not an easy uh, hitter's park. Kind of no. a little bit of like two extremes going cap- from Miami to Milwaukee. But, I mean, you're right. <clears throat> he, I mean, he hammers the ball. So whether it was – I mean, he was still hitting homers with terrible launch angles just based off of how hard he was actually hitting it. Um, so, I mean, he'll, he'll be uh, – I mean, if he has another season like last year where he puts the ball in the air with the same quality of contact that he's kind of maintained, then, yeah, I would say, I mean, at that point, maybe he would pass Mookie for the second-best player in the league. But I still think – I mean, Christian Yelich signing an under-market – deal doesn't make me frustrated at Mookie for not trying to maximize his value and just as frustrated at the Red Sox for not paying him what I feel he's worth. Yep. I mean, I just kind of wish that they were able to actually sit down and get this thing hammered out because I don't think anybody would be pissed at him getting like 10 and 350 from the Red Sox. And I think that probably would have been absolutely fair um, for him. And I agree. I mean, for the next three years, I take I take Mookie Betts as the second best player in baseball because the defense is so good. And I don't want people to think I'm like poo pooing Mookie by saying Christian Yelich's a better bat. Uh, Christian Yelich's probably a top three bat in all of baseball. Maybe, yeah. I mean, the only guys you could maybe consider ahead of him are. 
Trout and I don't know, maybe Bellinger? Probably not. He's probably a top two bat, yeah, right? Yeah, um, I'm struggling to think of someone that just purely got their bat I would take ahead of him. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, he's a stud. So that's all I wanted to kind of – I just wanted to kind of spitball it, and I think that you were a good person to spitball it with because – we do. You know, we have different point of views on this. So you, yeah. you got the uh, you got both sides here. So, um, all right. Well, we got one more topic, questions. man. We got a bunch today. Um, and our oh shoot, I almost it. skipped it. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> That's what um, you get for bouncing around. I know, I know. Um, you know it was it was hide it was hidden in uh, our player news. Um, so before we get to our listener questions, let me preface this. I mentioned at the top of the show, Keaton uh, wrote his first article, and it was on an interesting. Uh, I don't want to say first article ever. First article at our site, um, and Keaton uh, wrote about who's going to be the leadoff hitter for the Red Sox this year, um, including when. Verdugo comes back, which I think is the more interesting discussion. So, Keaton, yeah. report your findings. Yeah, I mean, I think the the leader in the clubhouse is Benintendi, um, and kind of through the breakdown of looking at splits at when people were hitting in the order or hitting somewhere in the order. Um, <clears throat> although Benintendi was really bad in his first at bat of the game which some argue is the only point of a leadoff hitter because essentially after three outs, you have a new leadoff hitter every time. But the guys at the top of the order get more at-bats than the guys at the bottom of the order, so it's still more important to have those maybe like four at-bats a game versus three. But <clears throat> he was actually really, really good in the leadoff position except for the first at-bat of the game. So it was his most productive position, and he had about half of his homers um, – from the leadoff spot um, and slashed 295, 390, 477 after his first at-bat, uh, which is a really solid slash line. Uh, he also It was the only position in the batting order where he had a double-digit walk rate last year, which is something that he's pretty typically been at. However, his slash line in that very first at-bat of the game was 119, 229, 143, and that was something that you had pointed out um, I can't remember when we were talking about it. I don't even remember if it was on a podcast or if it was just in conversation, actually. But you had pointed out that <clears throat> he had been overpowered significantly in that first at-bat, um, and that's really what people will stick in their mind because it's the leadoff hitter. It's the first at-bat of the game, and if he looked terrible, then people will be like, why well, is a terrible leadoff hitter? He actually didn't do that great. But it was actually his most productive position hitting in the order, even with that poor first at-bat. So I think um, just kind of having more confidence in himself, and we both kind of expect him to have a pretty solid year this year and take a step forward from what he did last year. Uh, and hitting in the leadoff spot seems like a good place to jumpstart that just based off of how he produced there versus other spots last year. And especially with Verdugo out, I don't think there's a ton of challenging for that. Um, I mean, I guess as long as Verdugo is out, maybe Pilar – ends up being a leadoff hitter, but I just I don't really want to see that. Uh, I'd rather see him at the bottom. <clears throat> so I think uh, at least until uh, Verdugo comes back, I, I think it's going to be Benintendi, and there isn't much to go into that. Um, 
until Verdugo gets back, and then that's when it gets a lot more interesting, particularly if Benintendi struggles. because So Verdugo hit in the two-hole for the majority of the time with the Dodgers last year. Uh, they had uh, Jock Peterson and A.J. Pollock doing most of the handling most of the leadoff duties. But at the top of the order, uh, Verdugo was much more uh, – he was only 26 of his 106 games last year, but he was much more productive from the two-hole than he was at the bottom of the order. <clears throat> And given his skill set, he actually kind of fits as uh, as a solid option for leadoff if they don't go with Benintendi. Um, and he seems much more comfortable at the top of the order, uh, even though it wasn't in uh, he wasn't hitting first. Um, still, I mean, the first two uh, at bats of the game are, I mean, it's just pretty important. And he has the hit tool and the uh, ability to steal some bags that make him pretty interesting as a leadoff option as well. He's actually, I mean, his profile is pretty similar to Benintendi. Benintendi will probably steal a few more bags, but um, they're not all that different in the profile. Maybe Verdugo has a a bit better of a hit tool. Benintendi has a little bit more power, but they're not all that different. So if Benintendi... I would actually actually say that they probably have (coughs) very comparable hit tools. One of the things that... I had just recently heard um, piggybacking off what you're saying right now was uh, was on the uh, Old Town podcast at the Athletic um, Lars Anderson who had played with both uh, or actually played just with Verdugo um, when he was in the minor leagues said that Verdugo's approach and the way that he kind of took at bats was far beyond his years even as a teenager. Um, so it kind of lo- lets you know that he's not going to be overwhelmed by the situation of, of leading off the game against tough pitchers. And I really like the skill set for that. I think it, he seems almost prototypical in that yeah. spot. And so that's why I think if Verdugo was going to be ready for opening day, this would actually be a really intriguing kind of uh, decision, like head-to-head here. But Benintendi is obviously going to get the first crack at it. But if he continues to struggle in the very first at-bat of the game, would not shock me for Dugo's the leadoff hitter when he comes back. So I also wrote about um, a couple wild card options that we could see the Red Sox go with. Uh, one of them was um, Michael Chavis did lead off for four games last year. Uh, and in a wildly small sample size, had a pretty decent slash line, hit a couple homers. Um, so if they were looking to buck the prototypical – uh, leadoff guy, that's one option that they could go with. Another one is Rafael Devers, who um, did the vast majority of his damage from the two-hole. Um, he's not quite the prototypical uh, leadoff guy, um, maybe a little bit more so than Chavis, but uh, he just has the uh, wild ability to get on base, which is what you're looking for in a leadoff guy, whether it's a walk or a hit <clears throat> or a homer or whatever it may be. Uh, and he had a 361 OBP hitting from the second spot, um, which is a really solid OBP to have. So um, depending on, I guess, how they wanted to fill out the rest of the order, if they didn't see a spot for Devers, like if they continue to go with um, Bogart's third, J.D. Martinez fourth, uh, and then they basically have Devers, Verdugo, and Benintendi, vying for the top two spots. Um, they could slide Benintendi down to, like, fifth and go, like, 
Devers lead off, Verdugo second, or kind of like flip-flop those. So it wouldn't shock me if we saw Devers maybe get a get some at-bats in a leadoff spot, although I think um, with healthy Benetton and Verdugo, I'm, I'm not sure that, but we will. But the last uh, wild card option that I went with is a long shot, but, I mean, there's a path for it to happen. Uh, like we were just talking about earlier, if – uh, the Red Sox are sellers, and they're not going where they they want to be going. Then uh, we could see them trade JBJ, and uh, if Jaron Duran continues his hot spring into the minors, we could actually see him promoted, and uh, he may be the leadoff hitter by the end of the year. It would not. Uh, I think it's a long shot, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was what happened. Um, he is a much more prototypical leadoff hitter with a ton of speed and a phenomenal hit tool that it just would not shock me if that's what we ended up seeing was Ben and or uh, JBJ getting dealt. And then the last uh, month of the season or so, like a September call up, we see Duran in a leadoff spot and see so just kind of seeing what he can do and how he can handle major league hitting. So that'd be a hell of a lot of pressure. On well, coming up. We saw how he reacted to double-A pitching for the first time last year. You know, he was completely overmatched. That, I think, would be a lot to ask from him. In his first well, would it be if they're – I mean, if they're not contending um, and they're just kind of letting guys get major league at bats, do you think he would still feel pressure? <clears throat> yeah, totally. I think he, I think if you're the table setter, you automatically feel pressure. I think he's the guy they'd want to hide in JBJ's nine spot if he's going to come up and play for – in the spot that JBJ was traded in. Um, I, I would be shocked if that happened. For me, the way that I rank your possibilities, I think Verdugo's the best option. I think that Benny's the second best option. Um, I don't like the Chavis or Devers ideas, so I guess I would go Duran third, Chavis fourth, Devers fifth. I never want to see Devers in a leadoff spot just because his bat is way too valuable. And I know that, like, by saver metrics, you want your best players to hit towards the top of the lineup. I could see Devers in the second spot, but first, I just need guys on base ahead of him every chance. I mean, every chance you possibly Devers in the leadoff role seems similar to Mookie to me in that um, really great ability to get on base. Uh, maybe not – well, I mean, Mookie could steal, so he's more of a – more prototypical than Devers, but um, Mookie was the best bat that they had in the lineup, and he said he was much more comfortable hitting leadoff than he was hitting third or fourth with guys in front of him. Like, he could have had, I don't know, maybe at least, like, 33% more RBIs than he did if he was hitting lower in the order, but he felt more comfortable at the top, uh, even though he was the best bat in the entire lineup. So I think that that could be Devers. Um you know, if he has another year like last year, it'd be hard to argue that he isn't the best bat in the lineup. Um, and with his ability to get on base, it just kind of – it could go that way. It was more of just a thought experiment than a um, – that's why it was in the wild card section. Um, okay. So it's, it's interesting to think about, but I think you're right. So do you think that his spot is better in the two-hole, or would you even rather have him, like, flip with Bogarts and maybe have him third? I think I'd rather have Bogarts in the two um, and have Devers in the third. Uh, that's kind of ideally how I'd like it because I think that 
Bogarts just does not get com- uncomfortable in any situation. Bogarts has had the kitchen sink thrown at him over the course of his career and has been able to adapt. And I think that Devers is still going to be prone to some struggles, as good as he is uh, offensively. He's still not quite as polished in his approach as somebody like Bogarts at this point. Yeah, you want to talk about throwing a guy to the fire. Uh, Bogarts, in his first taste of Major League action, was getting meaningful at-bats in a World Series. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and he Bogey, handled it in stride. Bogey's amazing. Bogey has been my favorite player on the Red Sox since he was in the minor leagues. Uh, I absolutely love this guy. So, yeah, Team Bogey. Um, but I liked it. It's an interesting experiment, and I hope we get to see Verdugo there for some period of time, unless Benintendi is absolutely enjoying, like, an all-star caliber year out of the leadoff spot, in which case, leave him alone. Yeah. All right, listener questions now. Um, from our co-writer and future, more involvement with our site, dun-dun-dun, um, Shelly Verstraight says, do you think Jonathan Arrows uh, sticks on the roster all year? I'm going to take this one first, Keaton. I do think he sticks on the roster all year. I know he was kind of on the bubble for both of us, but he made some good defensive plays today again, and he hasn't looked completely overmatched with the bat, and especially considering the fact that it doesn't look like they're going to be pushing for contention, I think they do keep him on the roster all year. Yeah, I think that's the way I'm leaning too. All right. Next one, Scott Nadell asks, this lineup is pretty solid. We have depth in a lot of positions now. Are we one top of the rotation piece uh, via trade away from being really good? No. I think think there's... Yeah. I mean, I like the lineup for sure, Uh, but I think that the pitching in the bullpen needs more than just, especially if Sale is not like Chris Sale then they need more than that. Yeah, I would say that they are two, like, Erod or better level pitchers away from being really in that contention area. Yeah. So I think there's too much work to do this yeah, year. Yeah, I agree. Fish Stripes, which is our SB Nation Miami Marlins affiliate. Yeah. Um, I'm loving how all these affiliates are checking in with us. We've had Purple Row, Colorado. We had Tribe, uh, Let's Go Tribe, which is Indians, and now Fish Stripes. This is amazing. Guys, please yeah. keep it up. I feel like we appreciate you. We need to make sure that Matt is sending questions to those guys, too, so we kind of reciprocate that involvement. We don't want that to be a one-way street. Yes. I totally agree. We're going to have to make sure we do that. But Fish Stripes asks us, how much young talent would you be willing to give up in a trade for one gently used Jose Urania? I would give up nothing. That guy sucks. (laughs) I'm sorry to say. He is like... He is absolutely <laughs> terrible. Um, I was looking at his stats today, and I was just like, oh, my Lord, he's so bad. I mean, he had a couple decent years in 2017 2018, but ugh, no, no to Jose Urania. I do not want anything to do with him at all. I mean, give me Ryan Weber instead. I guess he might be slightly better than Brian Johnson, but I don't know, man. I don't, I don't want anything to do with this. It's certainly not an asset I like. Yeah, honestly, I wouldn't – I think the thing that annoyed me the most about him was he was the guy that 
um, drilled Acuna after like four home runs in a previous series, wasn't he? And uh, I'm not not a big fan of that. But <clears throat> I I mean I would be interested. You don't think that um, he has like more value than Brian Johnson? If that's going to be the starter, maybe. But I don't want to give up an asset for him. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm thinking like maybe one or two back end top thirty guys. So that maybe that's not enough to really interest. But yeah, you're, maybe. I mean, he he intrigues me, but not to the point where I'm giving up someone in like the top half of the top thirty. No, if you want like some fringy roster depth, maybe pieces um, for Jose Urania to just to get rid of him, I will take him. Um, but that's a 95-plus mile-an-hour fastball that doesn't fool anyone, uh, and people absolutely hammer it. So I don't think he does anything particularly well. I do think he throws hard, though, so he's good if you like to hold a radar gun. You have uh, you got one of those pocket jugs you take with you to games? You know, I don't. I should. That'd be it fun. That would be fun. But I feel like, see, I would... Uh, I would just start doing it to everything, like people walking by me. I'd start radaring them. <laughs> you slow. You slow. Yeah. I would. Come on, kids. I would be uh, a little obnoxious with it. <laughs> yeah, I think I would too. Um, we got our next question from bike instead of car or boat or walking. Um, but bike says. What does the ideal path to success look like now? I think Boston is basically punting on the season, so I'm borderline incensed. They aren't just full-scale selling and resetting everything. Does the current trajectory just blow the present in less potential for later? Uh, I think we kind of hit on this, Keaton, right? Like, So the Chris Sale thing changes the chemistry of this a little bit, and we do expect them to become full-scale sellers at the deadline this year and probably get some pretty damn good assets back. Yeah, I would think so. And um, it's it's always annoying when, like, trades and things happen and you have to wait on, uh, like, the next domino to fall from it. But I think um, I'll be more frustrated if we go into the next offseason and they don't do anything. Like, they just try and stay pat with what they have. They think, oh, we'll have a healthy Chris Sale coming back another year of our young core, and then they <clears throat> they don't put that financial flexibility that they've been touting to good use. Um, it's an interesting free agent class. So, like, if they're not in play for, the like, the top tier of free agents, I'll be real annoyed. Um, but I think they're – the just the construction of the rotation and the bullpen is still major question, especially if Chris Sale isn't going to be there. So, I mean, I was already thinking that that was going to be the, the course of action for this year, but um, going into next year, they should be major players to, like, add a lot of core talent um, to be competitive in 2021 and beyond for the next however many number of years and still be under that godforsaken luxury tax threshold. So I think it's the path to success. I don't think we'll see it until next year or next offseason. Like we'll actually have to get through this season in order to see the direction for going forward. Um, but there's certainly a path for this team to be very competitive in 2021, 22, 23, just with 
keeping Devers and Bogarts and Verdugo and uh, I mean maybe even Erod. It depends on I guess like you, you've pointed out that he might be an option for trading. I I think I mean if Erod is going to be healthy enough and like be a third starter, like I I would prefer him to stay. Uh, I know the health is a question mark, but his stuff is so good and he keeps getting better. So I just love that guy. So I would I would prefer them to hold on to him, but I think that's the path to success. Is really we have to wait and see what they do to make themselves competitive next year. And I think the waiting is the worst part. But I mean that's just the state of the team. Yeah, rebuilds happen, and uh, this is still more of a retool to me than a full rebuild. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> All right, our next question comes from Andrew Amir, and he says, any chance the Red Sox re-engage the Padres or engage other teams about pitching? What's left on the free agent market is not good enough to help, especially in the AL East. Um, I expect that when they do shop some of the guys we're talking about, the primary targets for them will be pitchers. But it better be. <laughs> yeah. I don't – I mean – Like J.D. Martinez, like when I think about him, I'm thinking a team's, you know, top – young, maybe five, uh, one to five pitching prospect, you know, coming back for, for, for a guy like that. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think teams will be willing to give up that kind of player at the deadline versus now, because before anything has started, like teams that are typically on the edge, like, um, like Oakland, um, they have an interesting division. Uh, and they're usually like one of the wild card teams, and they usually are a second half team too. The last couple of years, they've made really strong runs in the second half. So if they're in that position again at the All Star break, like they they might be willing to give up, um, you know, one of their and they actually have a few pitching prospects that are very interesting. Um, but they might be able to give up like one of them plus maybe like Jorge Mateo or Franklin Barreto coming back too um, for JD Martinez. Uh, but they're not. They wouldn't be willing to do that now because um, they don't know where they're going to fall. They actually they might be competitive with the Astros. They might not be. But um, I think that uncertainty would or has teams less committed in giving something up for like Martinez. And then also, if the Red Sox actually think they're going to be competitive, then they're not going to want to deal JD Martinez now anyway. <laughs> so that it'll be a lot yeah. easier, and you'll probably get even a, like a better return, even though it's for. Um, potentially half a season if he opts out, um, then player the teams will be willing to kind of make that investment to put them over the top. If uh, Jorge Mateo or Franklin Barreto is involved in a return for JD Martinez, then I'm just going to keep JD Martinez and watch him the rest of the really? year. Really? Oh my god, I hate those guys. Yeah, I'm so interested. No, in both. thank you. Oh. That's on you, buddy. I'm out. Of, I'm, I'm out on both of those guys. But, I mean, not as not as a centerpiece. Um, like, um, no, I know. I just no thank really, you. Really, just a hard no <laughs> either way. Just a, a hard, hard pass. Like the oh, hardest right. of passes. Former top yeah. ten prospects totally just throwing them overboard. No. Yep. Former top ten for a reason. <laughs> Daniel Cadle has our next question. He says, could you explain more why you guys are down on the Sox trying Darwinson again as a starter? 
If it doesn't work out, you can switch back to the bullpen. Would be fairly straightforward. Why do you see it as a negative uh, outcomes aside from him not being good? And why would it make it not worth the try? Um, I'll, I'll tackle this first. Um, to me, this comes down to the fact that young players, I feel personally, need to be more stable in their role. Um, Darwinson had lots of opportunity in the minor leagues to start. Most of the time, almost all the time that he was in the minor leagues, he was starting. He never was able to control his stuff for longer stints, and the organization and people who evaluate him correctly assessed that this his best role would be in a bullpen role, you know, pitching out of the stretch, making sure that he is simplifying things and his command can sort of play up. And I think that if you're taking a guy like Darwinson, who's still extremely young, and switching him back and forth between roles, that that's going to be bad for his development. And I think that guys knowing where they are is super important. So we kind of saw that psychological effect on the Red Sox bullpen last year with guys not knowing their roles um, so I believe in that wholeheartedly. If you don't believe in that, then yeah, just throw them between both, I think. But yeah, I, I'm very much a believer of that. Yeah, so I, I wrote about that specifically in the last roundtable um, that went out on Friday, I think. <clears throat> but Darwin then is an option for like the fifth starter role. Because he was brought up as a starter, um, he still has really good stuff, and it was basically with the assumption that uh, they're punting on this year. So what's the harm in seeing what he can do as a starter now that he's had, um, you know, more of a stretch facing major league hitters? Um, he, I think the walks, he would just have to really rein those in, and I'm just not convinced that he can do that. And so I think he's better on just focusing on three outs, and that's it. Um, and he was really successful at that last year. I mean, there were times where the walks did come back to bite him in the butt, but for the most part – uh, in the role that he was in as a reliever, he was really successful. So um, I agree that it's a, that the transition back to the bullpen wouldn't be all that difficult, and I think that he would still be successful. Like I don't think it would throw off his development as a reliever at all, um, and I'm not opposed to just seeing what you can do if if he can give you anything, um, just given the state of the rotation. And that was also before, um, I think it was before McHugh. So that kind of might that might change yeah. my view as well because I think McHugh would be the better option over Darwinson. All right. And last question. Zach asks us, if you had to buy merch, jersey, shirt, jersey, for an upcoming Sox player, who would it be? Um, Keaton, give me one who's currently you think is going to make the 26th man and one prospect. Who? Um well, I mean, I guess Duran. Um, I wouldn't mind a nice Sea Dogs jersey with his number on the back. Also, I think pretty sure he's number 22, and uh, that's my favorite number. So that's, all, that's pretty solid, too. Um, someone I think is going to make the – well, Chavis. I mean, that's no brainer. Okay. Duran and Chavis. All right. I will go with um, Costas for that's my minor one. leaguer. And – I will go with Xander Bogarts for my. Uh, I guess he's not up and coming. I will go. <laughs> what? <laughs> I just think you all show Xander jerseys. Uh, Two-time World Series champ, up and comer. <laughs> he's still up and coming to me. Um, hmm. Hmm. All right. 
All right, people are not going to like this at all. But go out and buy a Verdugo <laughs> shirt. Stop burying this kid before he actually gets here. I mean, he's a really good player. Um, I know that there's been a lot of, like, up and down reports about his character, and I think that there's still development needs to be made there. But, like, I want everybody to give him a chance before. And uh, I think he could be a really exciting guy here. And by all accounts, he plays the game with a lot of passion. So I just... Don't want everybody to hate him uh, right off the bat. You know that's that's going to make for a long period of both watching him and listening to you guys hate him uh, that that we don't need. So go out and buy a shirt, maybe. You also left one question inexplicably off of this list. I noticed. Not I'm not answering or recognizing. <laughs> Why? It's, You're the one that brought it up with. No, that's just dumb. It's just dumb snark at this point. I don't want it. Okay. You can, you can bring it up if you want. It's your show too, man. <laughs> well, I wanted to hear what your answer was. So, sounds like you don't want to answer it. The question we got from Max was, how much more do you think financial flexibility will be worth this year? And I wanted to hear Jake answer that. <laughs> and I won't. So... <laughs> We do hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please go on, rate and review the show. We appreciate that. Subscribe to us. You can subscribe to us on Apple, Google, um, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can follow both of us on Twitter. You can follow Keaton at The Spoken Keats. You can follow me at DevJake. And you can follow the Over the Monster account at, at Over the Monster. So thank you very much, and we'll be with you next time. Thank you.